Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts, and we have three segments on today's show for you. First, senior editor at Acton, Reverend Ben Johnson, will be speaking with Philip Booth, who's professor of finance, public policy, and ethics at St. Mary's University in the UK. On today's episode, he joins us to discuss Catholic social teaching in China. Then we have another econ quiz segment for you, which will cover redistribution of wealth and Walter Williams. Lastly, Dan Churchwell, Director of Program Outreach here at Acton, will be speaking with Jay Richards, Executive Editor at The Stream on Tech and Work. So, without further ado, let's jump into it. This is my right. Welcome to Transatlantic Intelligence. I'm Reverend Ben Johnson. In the winter of 2018, it seems to many of us as though we've entered an alternate reality in which the dictatorship of North Korea is led by charming people and in which the nation that is best implementing Catholic social teaching is the People's Republic of China. The latter statement comes to us by way of Bishop Marcelo Sanchez Serrando, the Argentine who is currently Chancellor of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. Earlier this month, he said, quote, Right now, those who are best implementing the social doctrine of the Church are the Chinese. Here to discuss this with us is Dr. Philip Booth. Dr. Booth is a professor of finance, public policy, and ethics at the UK's largest Catholic university, St. Mary's University, Twickenham. He's also a senior academic fellow at the Institute of Economic Affairs in London. He's calling us from that city for this segment. Dr. Booth, welcome to Transatlantic Intelligence. I don't wish to be unduly uncharitable toward any nation, but perhaps you could tell us why China is not the best model and exemplar of implementing Catholic social teaching. Well, there's no country in the world a perfect model of Catholic social teaching, but um, China has a number of imperfections at a rather fundamental level. So it's very clear, of course, that China has liberalized its economy somewhat since the very late 1970s. Um, China was a totally totalitarian state with very little economic freedom or social freedoms um, during the 1970s. The vast majority of its population lived assistance level um, or below. Um, it's liberalized its economy somewhat. There is some freedom to earn property, to invest in businesses, um, etc. And that has led to a considerable increase in um, the, the income of, of uh, Chinese people. But of course, Catholic social teaching is not just about utilitarian um, economics. And there are a number of fundamental areas where China falls um, really very short of where it should be and indeed where any um, country uh, ought to be. There is very little freedom, for example, for civil society uh, groups organized. Freedom of conscience is somewhat restricted. The um, church, the Catholic Church, cannot organize um, f- freely. Christians are persecuted, and it's argued that the situation is getting uh, worse by those on the ground who actually uh, go around collecting um, evidence. Parents do not have freedom when it comes to choosing an education for their children. People do not have freedom when it comes to health care. And of course, there is a Chinese policy in relation to population control. So at a really fundamental level, despite the fact that there have been some improvements in areas you might regard as 
being peripheral, the whole Chinese state simply not organized in a way which is consistent with Catholic social teaching. Thank you for that overview. And of course, when one thinks about Catholic social teaching, perhaps the most fundamental thing one thinks about is papal authority. And yet that's a major issue in China. You could say that in order to find out the many fundamental ways in which China falls short of fulfilling Catholic social teaching, one could begin by speaking with faithful Chinese Catholics. That's absolutely right. And of course, there are discussions between the Vatican at the moment and the Chinese government about the, about the position of the state Catholic Church and the underground Catholic Church. Uh, freedom of conscience is a fundamental part of Catholic social teaching. It's um, one of the uh, most important functions of uh, government, and it can't be sort of divided as a separate issue. Catholic social teaching is about these broader and fundamental things um, as well. Now, of course, the Vatican does have to take prudent, pragmatic decisions uh, in some, uh, on um, uh, some occasion in relation to how it deals with states to deal with the practical realities of um, the uh, uh, interstate relations uh, and, and so on. The fact that the Catholic Church in China is not free to organize, the fact that it has to uh, be underground, the fact that the Vatican feels it necessary to discuss these matters with the Chinese government is an indication that at first base, um, the Chinese government fails when it comes to implementing the basic principles of Catholic social teaching. Now, you alluded to some of the negotiations that are going on between the Vatican and Beijing. Many of the bishops of the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association were appointed by Beijing, not by the Vatican, and many of those bishops have not been recognized by the papacy, at least not heretofore. Do you believe that those negotiations underlie some of the positive statements that we're hearing about the People's Republic of China? Well, I do hope that the uh, chapter of the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences is not simply making statements about China and Catholic social teaching, which I would regard to be not exactly helpful, not, not in congruence with, uh, with the church's social teaching, but in order to ease a diplomatic um, process. And occasionally in um, the reality of diplomatic processes is, is that you might choose to say nothing when uh, you should perhaps say something in order to not uh, uh, disturb a delicate balance or a delicate process that's going on, but to say something that actually really is not true in order to smooth along a, a diplomatic process is really quite inappropriate. And I'm sure he wouldn't do that. In your article for the Catholic Herald entitled Don't Look to China for an Example of Catholic Social Teaching, you write, the problem with Bishop Sarando is that he seems to have a rather reductionist view of Catholic social teaching. It all boils down to climate change, and Sarando is praising China's actions in that respect. However, he's ignoring certain weightier matters which you uh, detail in some length in your article, freedom of conscience, the right to life, various other forms of violation of property rights which continue to this day. Since he's so focused on climate change, and in light of what President Trump has done in withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accord, do you believe that this statement was intended at least as much uh, as a critique of the West as it was an attempted rapprochement with China? That is absolutely true, and, and in particular, it's a critique. Uh, he has a, swipe, a side swipe at the um, United States, saying that the problem in the United States is that the economic order dominates politics. Um, that's a very odd thing um, to say. I mean, certainly you can argue about the 
uh, in the United States about the problem of crony capitalism and vested interests influencing policy in uh, Washington and, and Washington DC uh, and so on. But China is a country rather like the South American countries, which Sarondo, the Pope and many of his advisors come from, where politics and the economy are entirely un intertwined. So instead of um, the um, polity creating the rule of law in which all can live freely in uh, um, both in terms of economic and business life but also in terms of uh, civil society and, and the church um, the state in of these countries and including in china is intertwined with the whole of civil society and the whole of the economy making it both less free but also when it comes to the state's involvement in economic life um, uh, making the state uh, a more corrupt institution um, than it should be and china doesn't do well in indices of corruption. It's, it languishes really uh, alongside other, alongside South American countries. Um, uh, the United States and other Western countries uh, do much better. So there's plenty you can criticize the West for in relation to Catholic social teaching, uh, but it's very difficult to find areas. Um, he mentioned climate change. We can perhaps come to that in a moment. It's very difficult to find areas where China does better than the West, and in most areas, it does substantially worse. You're a student not only of economics, but also of ethics and of Catholic social teaching. If one were to look at the different emphases within Catholic social teaching, uh, for example, freedom of conscience, freedom of religion, the freedom of the church to constitute itself in the way in which it traditionally does, the right to life. This is a nation with a two-child policy and an estimated 23 million abortions a year, many of which are forced, the right to freedom of association, the right to educate your children in the way in which you choose, versus climate change. What is the relative weight that the Catholic social teaching gives to each of those doctrines? Oh, I, th I think unquestionably the first set of issues relating to freedom of conscience and so on um, are fund fundamental and come before, and the right to life, of course, come before uh, anything else. It's, um, it's perfectly reasonable, either as a scientist or an economist, to come to the conclusion that, that global warming is the greatest um, uh, threat to um, humanity in terms of modern practical threats. Don't necessarily share that view, but to actually deny somebody life or to deny the people who you live who live in your state freedom of conscience, freedom of association, freedom to educate their children how they wish, is to deny them um, fundamental goods, uh, and that really does not compare with prudential decisions which one might take with regard to um, issues such as climate change, however important those issues might be. As you noted, there's been a significant change in China, at least since the time of Deng Xiaoping, uh, in regard to private property and freedom of the economy. And with that change, there's been an attendant march out of extreme poverty. As you know, there's an argument that's made, particularly in the United States, that private property rights will inevitably pave the way for political liberalization, and they will act as a guarantor of other freedoms which are currently being violated by the government in Beijing. Are you sanguine or suspicious when it comes to China? I'm not sanguine. Um, I suppose I'm hopeful but slightly uh, pessimistic. Um, Ronald Coase published uh, a, a book, his, his, his last book, just before he died, um, when he was uh, 102. He published a book when he, he died when he was 102. He published a book when he was 101. And, and that is a life well lived. And uh, actually, I think it was his first book, which wasn't simply a collection of papers. So to be a Nobel Prize winner that writes your first book uh, at the age of 101 uh, and, and 
um, 70 years after you've got the, the, uh, the paper for which you've got the Nobel Prize is, is really quite something. I published that book when I was um, editorial director at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And in that book, he traces the development of China, the development of um, private property, the revolution in terms of the greater business freedom which um, ex existed and, and uh, developed over time, and which did create this, what, what was probably the um, greatest achievement in the economic history of the planet in terms of moving from a situation where uh, the majority of the population lived in absolute dire poverty on the edge of starvation in many cases, to a situation where very few people um, lived in that um, uh, lived in dire circumstances, and that just happened in 20 years uh, or so. And he raises in the last chapter of this uh, of the book the question of whether or not there can be, if you like, a market in ideas in China which will um, help um, cement those reforms, but also help lead another period of transformation. And of course, Catholic social teaching wouldn't put it uh, in quite the same way. But we need freedom of expression, we need um, freedom to uh, own and dispose of, of, of property, we need freedom, especially uh, religious freedom, freedom of education and freedom for civil associations. And the question really is whether or not the economic freedoms which have um, uh, been promoted will lead in the long term to those other freedoms. I think that there is a good chance that they will, or at least there is a good chance that the situation will improve. Now, there is much more Chinese travel to the uh, uh, West, of course. Many Chinese um, um, citizens are now educated uh, in the West, and, and these things are uh, always helpful in opening up um, a, a country to uh, new ideas, greater level of tolerance, and to promoting a, a freer society. Um, but it's not the only result, of course. You could uh, get a, a clampdown by a state, and there are all sorts of legacies from the um, population-controlled um, co population control policies of an imbalance of boys and girls, um, men and women, and a declining population, which could give rise to civil conflict, which could also um, provoke a response from the government, which uh, takes China um, backwards. So you know, one possible outturn whether it's the most likely outturn, I don't know. But one possible outturn is that this economic freedom will lead um, medium and long term to greater civil, political and religious freedoms. There's a saying from Confucius, which is roughly paraphrased. The beginning of wisdom is calling all things by their true names. Thank you for sharing your honesty and your analysis with us here at Religion, Liberty, Transatlantic and for Radio Free Acton. Pleasure. Until our next segment of Transatlantic Intelligence, be sure and read our website every day, Religion and Liberty Transatlantic. That's acton.org slash publications slash transatlantic. Welcome to Econ Quiz, an occasional feature of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute. Today is Wednesday, February 7th. I'm your host, John Caritas. Econ Quiz is where we pose a real-world economic question, problem, issue to an economist. Uh, today's guest is David Hebert, a professor of economics at Aquinas College in Grand Rapids. Welcome back to Econ Quiz, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. Today I want to talk about an idea that uh, Walter Williams has formulated called Certificates of Performance. And he's done this talk uh, a number of times. And what he 
how he describes this is that in a free society, income is earned through pleasing and serving one's fellow man. William says, I mow your lawn, repair your roof, or teach your kid economics. In turn, you give me dollars. We can think of dollars as certificates of performance. With these certificates of performance in hand, I go to my grocer and ask him to give me a pound of steak and a six-pack of beer that my fellow man produced. Uh, an interesting take on what most of us would describe as money, uh, his, and I'd like to talk about this in light of income redistribution. William says that, and I'm quoting him here, propaganda and stubborn ignorance has it that the advances of capitalism benefits only the rich. And by that, he gets into the whole subject of income or wealth unjustly earned, therefore it must be redistributed through some coercive power from the outside. So let's talk about this a little bit. As the, Let's talk about these certificates of performance and then how we're supposed to understand that in, in light of the argument of redistribution. Yeah. So the idea behind viewing income as certificates of performance or earning certificates of performance is that the only way for you to actually earn any money in a free and voluntary society is for you to actually serve other people. And in turn, they give you dollars. Now, these dollars represent a objective or a um, as evidence that you have actually performed something for someone in society. <clears throat> and so what we want to see is people, you know, doing things for other people, serving them effectively, and earning these certificates of performance. Once they have these certificates of performance in hand, they're able to go and make claims on the product of other people. And what we're essentially seeing is any time that we purchase something, we're saying to the cashier or the person checking us out, that you want to purchase something or acquire something that someone else has produced. And the cashier effectively says, well, have you served society as well? You are asking someone in, in our society to serve you. Have you served us too? And you can say yes, because you have these certificates of performance, which we often just call dollars or pesos or anything else. And you have those in hand and you say, yes, and here is my proof. Now, if we view income that way, some people are going to be tremendously good at serving other people. And as a result, they'll have a lot more of these certificates of performance and will have a claim on more things that other people have produced as well. So that's the point where we get at the controversy. For most people, you're going to the grocery store to buy groceries, this exchange of certificates of performance makes perfect sense. Or if I'm going to sell a bicycle on Craigslist, this exchange mutually beneficial, no problem. The redistribution argument comes in when, as you point out, others are more successful at, in these performance measures than others, and then there's some sort of moral taint that is ascribed to their wealth. Right. So that's where we get into uh, whether or not capitalism actually does promote the wealthy and, and hinder or harm the poor. And if you want to think about it, we can look no further than the, the two or two of the wealthiest people in the world, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates. Well, how did they earn all of their money? They didn't do it by serving the wealthy. They served the masses. 
Right? It turns out the vast majority of the world are not in the 1%. And so if you want to serve more people, you need to find a way to serve the other 99%. Jeff Bezos did that by making it easier for us to connect buyers and sellers. I challenge any listener to admit that they've never bought anything on Amazon before. And if they have, they are proof that Jeff Bezos has helped them. Same thing with Microsoft. Microsoft is on something like 70% of all the computers in the world. That's a crazy figure. Well, that means that 70% of something like 2 billion computers run Windows, which means that Bill Gates and his efforts have directly contributed to making their lives better off. And so as a result, we would expect Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates to have tremendous numbers of dollars or certificates of performance because they have performed services for millions, if not billions of people and will continue to do so for years to come. So where, uh, where does this redistribution argument, which has been with us for a couple hundred years, must be at least in various forms, What's the source of this, and what do you think its ultimate aim is in light of what you just said? Yeah, so what people, what people who argue for income redistribution are effectively saying is that they disagree with the choices of millions and millions of free people to purchase those products that result in Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos having billions of dollars. And they say... We want to correct this because clearly at least some portion of these millions of people were wrong. And we need to take that money from these people who have served us very well and give it to other people. And that just seems flawed. Well, ultimately, that's going to wreak a lot of destruction in the economy that benefits so many people, would you not say? Yeah, I mean, anytime you are rewarded for doing something less, you end up doing less of it. Think if your boss at work said, hey, I'm going to take 30% of your income and give it to someone else. You might respond, rightly I would say, by telling your boss that no, you can't do that. right? Or you might respond by quitting your job and finding one where your boss wouldn't do that. So when this argument goes from speculative philosophy or political talking points to something very personal, that's when people pay attention, right? Right. It's a remarkable thing where in our private lives with just ourselves, we're all devout capitalists. But the interesting thing is that we don't want capitalism for other people, right? We only want it for ourselves. Good point. Thanks for joining us today, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me. series on the Acton podcast called Technology and the Future of Work. My name is Dan Churchwell, and I serve as the Associate Director of Program Outreach here at the Acton Institute. It's our desire that through interviews with experts and practitioners alike, that this series will delve into some of the most fundamental questions that technology is bringing to the forefront of our everyday lives. Our first guest is no stranger to Acton. Dr. Jay Richards is currently a research assistant professor at the Bush School of Business and Economics at the Catholic University of America in Washington, DC. He also serves as a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute 
and executive editor of The Stream. Prior to his role at Catholic University, Richards was a research fellow and director of Acton Media at the Acton Institute, where he led multiple projects, including the development of our excellent documentary, The Call of the Entrepreneur. Dr. Richards is releasing a new book in June and is titled The Human Advantage, The Future of American Work in the Age of Smart Machines. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Richards. Thanks. Great to be with you, Dan. Uh, it, it looks if, if one looks at your books and your media projects that, that you've been a part of over the last decade or so, um, one can quickly tell that you have a very diverse interdisciplinary set of interests. Um, you've written books that deal with theological, economic, political, uh, even, even scientific and cultural questions. Uh, tell us what the, uh, the impetus was for writing this new book on the future of work. Absolutely. I mean, in some ways, in my own mind, this book is the sequel to my 2009 book, Money, Greed, and God. But as you note, I mean, over certainly over the last 10 years, I've been working really kind of at the intersection of theology and economics. But my, my wider interest academically is really, it's sort of the interdisciplinary space between philosophy, theology, and science, whether it's natural science or human science. And, you know, at some point, academics sort of, we make our choices and some academics decide, okay, I'm going to spend my time writing in technical journals of whatever my subspecialty is. And I did a little of that when I was in graduate school and just out. But honestly, about the time I finished my dissertation, I realized I wanted to spend more time at the level of what I call translating. So essentially translating the best and most interesting ideas that tend to get trapped in, in academic spheres uh, for the general educated reader and, and viewer. So that's why I spent so much time writing, you know, so-called trade press books and working on documentaries and things like that. It's, it's really a reflection of my conviction that that is where most people, for good or for ill, actually get their information. And I don't think there's enough people certainly uh, defending the truths of the Judeo-Christian tradition and also defending the virtues of a free market economy. And so, um, you know, it, it, there was a point where I thought maybe I'll focus on this for a few years. But as you quickly learn, if you start writing and talking about economic issues, there are more than there's more than enough confusion uh, to spend the rest of your life working on it. And so that's really what I'm still doing. And the human advantage is an attempt to respond to this kind of overwhelming question that people have. Is the American dream over? Is all economic growth and prosperity a thing of the past? And are robots going to take all of our jobs and, and replace us? And that's that's really what this new book, The Human Advantage, is about. Well, that, I mean, you can't go a day without seeing a new headline about this topic, right? Um, some, yes. Some sort of new technology that is um, either going to or has, you know, uh, eliminated jobs. Um, in, in the center of your book, the core chapters in the uh -huh. middle, you, you bring up the idea of cultivating virtues uh, of, like, courage, anti-fragility, altruism, uh -huh. collaboration, you know, to, to overcome some of the downsides of this creative destruction that you you develop it in the book, um, wh why did you choose those specific virtues, or how do you think yeah. those ideas will help? I think, it, simply put, I, I argue that what we can call it the information economy. So this is the economy that's now emerging from the industrial and service economy has particular features. It tends to grow exponentially. 
It's hyper-connected. It's heavily informational. There are properties that it has that distinguishes it in some ways from the economic systems that came before. And so my argument is that if we want to succeed in this new economy, that is, we want to not, not get replaced by machines, but be able to use them in complementary ways, we need to cultivate the virtues that correspond to these key features of the information economy. One of those features is, as you said, it's actually the, really the main cost of the information economy is that it's highly disruptive. And unfortunately, most of that disruption hasn't happened yet. We're, it's still kind of, we're, we're just wandering up the foothills. It's going to get more uh, much more disruptive as artificial intelligence becomes, I think, more proficient. And so what that means is, okay, what, what kind of virtue do you need or virtues do you need in a highly disruptive economy? Well, one is courage. That is the willingness to act in the context of ignorance and potential failure. But fail, just willingness to fail is no guarantee of success. So, so you need courage. You also need anti-fragility, which is a term I used, picked up from Nicholas Nassim Taleb in his book of the same term. But anti-fragility is essentially, it's different. Obviously, it's the opposite of fragility, but it's also different than mere robustness. Uh, mere robustness means, well, you're not likely to be destroyed. But you need to be more than that. You need to be willing to fail, and you also need to be able to learn from failure. And the reason is because... In a highly disruptive context, you're more likely to fail than succeed. And so you want your failure to actually teach you something about what to do the next time. And so I really go through, okay, what are the main features of the information economy? And then what would be the corresponding virtues? And the broader sort of argument is that only human beings, that is free agents like ourselves, can actually make choices, can actually change ourselves, can cultivate virtue. Machines are never going to be able to do that. So to succeed... We should really basically focus on our comparative advantage over machines and expect machines to do those things that aren't in our comparative advantage. So anything that can be reduced to rules, anything that uh, is not necessarily routine, but essentially anything that can be easily translated into machine work, you should just assume that that's going to get taken over by machines. who will do even driving cars before long. They're going to do that better than most of us can do it. Absolutely. And, and, and as I read through it, you, you brought up this fact too, but I mean, for about 50 or 60 years, there have been different kinds of uh, prognostications, people thinking, mm. you know, um, technology, they, they've been profiteering off of this, yes. this technology scare. But, but it does seem, doesn't it, that there is, we really are on the cusp of some mm. real again, you use Schumpeter's term, you know, creative destruction, that, right. and, and if there is the term destruction, we have to remember that there are winners and losers, if, if, mm. if we want to put it in yes. that, so, so that there is really disruption, there is real destruction coming. Yes. How do you, um, and this is not necessarily, just how, you, how do you generally grapple with that when you talk right. to people about this? Well, honestly, what, the, and what I do throughout the book is what I do when people ask me this question is I say, okay, look, if, if new technology created long-term unemployment, human history would be a long, sad tale of more and more people becoming unemployed. Well, of course, that's absurd. Um, so what you do is look at actual historical uh, sort of joints, so places in which a, an economy moved from one fundamental type of arranging itself to another. And what you find is a real cost, disruption. So the transition uh, most recently in American history was from an agrarian 
culture to an industrial and manufacturing culture. I mean, people forget this, but I focus on my, my grandfather, on my grandfather on my mother's side. He grew up in an agricultural economy on a farm, but he was in the panhandle of Texas, not a lot of good farming. He ended up driving a truck and baling hay and doing things like that, which were sort of related to farming. But the reality is if you look at the American founding, 95% of the population lived and worked on farms. As recently as 1900, half of the U.S. population lived and work on, worked on farms. Today, it's less than 1% of the population. So obviously, there's been a huge amount of disruption for a lot of people over that period and individual cases that are very sad. But there's no doubt that the overwhelming effect of this is that people actually have much higher valued uses of their labor. The price of food, the price of basic labor has continued to go down so that most of us only spend about 13% of our income on food now as a result of these changes. And, you know, my, my grandfather's six children, one of whom was my mom, they all picked cotton. They all knew the experience, but he moved them to the nearest town with the university so they could go to college. That's what they did, and none of them went back to farming. And so I think we need to look at this in exactly the same way. It's not that machines and technology are literally going to replace everything that humans can do, what they're going to do is replace a heck of a lot of what we happen to be doing right now. And I think that's the key insight. But I think it, it, we always want to accept that disruption is a real cost. It's not just kind of a blessing in disguise. Sometimes I think the mistake for people that are talking about this, um, when you're talking about change, young people see it as almost entirely good. Old people see it as almost entirely bad. The path of wisdom is to see real costs and benefits in whatever circumstance you find yourself. And in this case, I think the upside for new technology is much greater than the downside, but the downside is quite quite bad if you're a long-haul trucker that gets replaced by an automated truck. Right, and, and, and that is, um, I mean, there's so many ways to look at this. I guess um, in, in Chapter 6, you allude you know, to the invention of the printing press roughly mm -hmm. 500 years ago. And the move from the spoken to the written word, if, if people study that, you know, that obviously was a major, like you said, joint or um, transition period. And yes. it really changed, you know, brought in the Reformation and all kinds uh -huh. of things culturally changed. Well, you, you liken that to the digitization of, you know, music, books and everything. Uh, currently, all of the digitization dramatically reduces the prices of almost anything it right? does and i mean yeah this is digitization is another one of these features of the natural of the information economy and what that really means is the conversion of atoms to bits is it's often put you know that we have moved from uh, selling cds or selling lps or live music to the music that we access as being entirely digital so mp3 i can tell you the last time i even bought a cd uh, it, it's reduced to being entirely digital. Why that's important economically is that digital goods are non-rival and they have essentially zero marginal cost. So non-rival means that somebody can use it without you know, preventing someone else from using it. So a car is a, is a rival good. If I own and drive a car, then nobody else can be owning and driving it simultaneously. But of course, an MP3 file of Katy Perry. I don't know why she came into my mind. Let's say somebody wants to be well, Katy Perry. I, you never know what's going to come into your brain, right. right? But I can download, I won't do that, but I can download her latest album, and that doesn't prevent anyone else from accessing it, too. So these are non-rival goods. And also, the marginal cost of that 
file is essentially zero. There were all these startup costs, but it's not like a car that has to be manufactured and has different parts and things. And so these things, they move toward basically free at the point of service and their non-rival goods. That's hugely important. And you don't recognize how different that is from earlier parts of uh, kind of types of economies. You're not going to know, okay, so what kind of assets and, and virtues do I need to, to cultivate? This is hugely beneficial for, uh, for consumers of music. I mean, I just absolutely love the fact I can find anything on Spotify. And basically, I just happen to have an internet connection and I, I listen to the ads, which is fine. That, to me, that's an improvement. But of course, if your job was building CDs in a CD factory, uh, that's going to be a problem. Just like if your job was to build eight-track uh, tape, tapes in the 1970s. Right, right. No, I don't think anybody's doing that anymore. And so we, we tend to miss that. Let, let me flip that for a second, though. So economically, I think most people, you know, we, we grasp that and we're thankful for all of those things that have driven costs down. But there are multiple cultural or media critics mm -hmm. um, that would argue that, okay, that might be good if we talk raw economic terms, right. but what about the cultural influence or the glut of it? You know, information becomes so cheap. Uh, music right. becomes, you know, all it, it cheapens the fact, and then there is an expanse of the information so that it nobody really knows what is worth listening yeah. to anymore be so well, it, it's a different it's, it's a cultural argument not an economic argument what what yeah. do you think of some of that transition it is and i mean people talk a lot about that stuff and so i always want to kind of zero in okay on what what exactly the argument is and so let's just take this idea that well so listening to music is essentially free so you might think, okay, so what, what do you think that's going to cause to happen? Because what's actually happening is entirely different from what people expect. So, for instance, you're right. As information itself gets close to free, what happens is that other things become more valuable. So the more information you can access online, the more valuable filtering software and prioritizing software is. I mean, this is why so many people use the Drudge Report. They're basically, they're trusting Drudge and his team to filter all of this information. And so what actually happens is when information ceases to be scarce, um, things like time and attention become the, the, the new scarcity. And so that's all of us feel that, is that we can waste a lot of time because anybody can send a free email to our email address if they can find it. And so filtering software becomes more important. And so always, whenever there's some, something that was scarce becomes abundant, essentially you can, should be willing to essentially waste that thing that's abundant because it's almost free in exchange for other things. And in this case, it's something like time and attention. And so what I think is actually happening, and I've actually got some data on this in the book, Everybody predicted that live music would die right, uh, with, right. with MP3 files. Of course, I can now listen to anything right here on my iPhone. If, but look at what's happened to the cost of live concerts since the iPhone uh, came available in 2007. It turns out that live concerts have more than doubled, you know, including the, the rate of inflation. It's basically two and a half times more expensive to see live concerts than it was in 2007, before people could get basically free information on a smartphone. And so what's happening is that as the, that the particular experience goes down in monetary value, the value of things like unique experiences with friends goes up. And so my argument is actually that what we see happening is something no economist could have predicted. Economists treat labor as an input. So economic growth comes about when you have less 
input, less labor, and more output, with the, the ideal being the kind of particle transformer on Star Trek, where you can just order a cup of tea and it appears. What's actually happening is that we're starting to value labor as an input. So when far regular farm goods and produce get really, really cheap, suddenly people start valuing local agriculture that's grown nearby or maybe grown in their own garden. That's not... You know, at that point, they're not saying, okay, this is a more efficient thing. It's that they, their sort of values and preferences are changing so that they're actually more interested in the way something was produced right, and right. the intensity of the labor rather than the sort of minimal amount of the labor. This is a weird kind of thing that it, it's the sort of thing you would expect if you believe in the subjective theory of economic value, but it, no one would really predict that suddenly people are going to start valuing more labor-intensive ways to produce ties or to produce produce. So that's actually what's happening. So, so in all of your research, um, did, did you find anything that, we, we have time for this, this last question, did, mm -hmm. did you find anything that led you to be more cautious of technology, or is, is there anything that brings you yes. pause with the, uh, the disruption that's coming? Yeah, not so much the disruption itself as uh, the evil ways in which we can use technology. And so every gift, right, the Gutenberg Press made it much easier uh, to, to, you know, to send text, it made text much cheaper. It put monks out of a lot of jobs that were before having to, to write the manuscripts. But it also enabled evil things like Mein Kampf to be proliferated. In the same way, better and better virtual reality and robotics is going to make our surgeons' abilities to interact with people thousands of miles away possible. It's also going to make much better, in a sense, porn, much more realistic porn. We're going to have sex robots. When I was working on this book, I had a bunch of Google alerts for different terms. One of them, alas, was sex robots because I knew that, there, well, guess what? Every day there's a story about the coming sex robots. That's all an integration of all this amazing information technology plus robotics. That is an evil use uh, of a technology, and that's a cost. And so I think we should just face that directly is that all this technology is going to both call forth uh, and summon greater virtue from us, in particular, particular virtues. It's also going to find new ways to undercut the virtues that we most need to develop. And I just think that's a that's a reality that we're going to have to deal with. Well, Dr. Richards, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, develop some of the ideas in your new book. Um, again, for our listeners, the book is called The Human Advantage the future of American work in an age of smart machines and uh, look for it on Amazon and bookstores everywhere in June. That's right. All right. Well, thank you, Jay. You have a wonderful afternoon. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Um, thanks, Jay. Bye-bye. And that completes today's episode. A big thanks to all our listeners out there. If you'd like to learn more about the Acton Institute, visit our website at acton, A-C-T-O-N while you're there, you can check out our events page at actin.org events. There we have a full calendar of upcoming events, including our next Acton Lecture Series event on March 8 here in Grand Rapids. Yuval Levin, Vice President of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, will be speaking on searching for the solidarity in the age of Trump. Lastly, if you have questions for Acton staff you would like to hear answered in future podcast episodes, please leave us a message at 888-705-4180 or email us at rfa at actin.org. This episode was produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.